Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT podcast. Your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Eli, back with you on the AAMFT podcast. Today we're going to talk about what it means to be a witness, therapists as witnesses and clients as witness. This term has been popularized in psychotherapy in our systemic work by our guest today, Katha Weingarten. Katha directs the Witness to Witness program for the Migrant Clinicians Network. The goal of Witness to Witness is to help the helpers these helpers primarily serving healthcare workers, attorneys, and journalists working with vulnerable populations. Katha received her doctorate from Harvard in 1974. She's taught at Wellesley College, Harvard Medical School, where she was an associate professor of psychology in the Department of Psychiatry at the Children's Hospital in Boston. She's founded and directed the program in Families, Trauma, and Resilience at the Family Institute of Cambridge. And internationally, she's taught many places, including Africa, Australia, Canada, Europe, and New Zealand, where she was a Fulbright specialist. Authored over 300 presentations, keynote speakers at numerous national and international conferences. And in 2002, she was awarded the highest honor from AFTA, the American Family Therapy Academy, the Distinguished Contribution to Family Theory and Practice. She's written six books. Her most recent book, Common Shock, talks about witnessing violence every day. Dr. Weingarten's work focuses on the development and dissemination of a witnessing model, which she will speak of in depth today. One prong of that work is about the effects of witnessing violence and trauma in the context of domestic, inter-ethnic, racial, political, and other forms of conflict. The other prong of witnessing work is in the context of health care, illness, and disability. In 2013, Katha and her husband moved all the way to Berkeley, California to be near their children and grandchildren. There she resumed a dance and choreography practice, which she'll mention at the end of the interview, which is really cool and and blended that in with witnessing. Since she moved to Berkeley, she's actually been awarded five grants for this choreography with elder dancers applying witnessing model in public spaces. Hope you enjoy this interview and we'll be back with some exciting news from the AMFT after I speak with Katha. With Noble, mental health professionals like you can help more people in less time, support a worthy cause, and earn passive income. Clients pay a monthly fee to gain access to automated between-session content, assessments to track their progress, and a messaging feature where they can chat with you directly. The best part? A portion of the proceeds earned through Noble are donated to organizations who are focused on directly impacting the mental health space and trauma-based issues. Join for free at noble.health and begin using our app when it launches in November.
So pleased to be joined on the AAMFT podcast by Kata Weingarten. I've been looking forward to talking to you for a while because a lot of times we get recommendations from listeners. You probably more recommendations to talk to you from all our past guests, including people like Gwen Daniel and Celia Falikoff. We're going to talk generally about your career and really what has been a major focus, which is your witnessing project. But first, if you've ever listened, Kata, to the show, we, we like to know about our expert. What got you into the family therapy profession to start with? What is your origin story, so to speak? There were four people in my family. I have an older sister, and my father went to war. He went. He served in the Navy during World War II, and he left when my sister was six weeks old. He didn't come back until she was three and a half, and my mother worked full-time as a newspaper reporter, and There were a lot of other families with young children in that era in the same position. And so they had an extended network of friends and also an extended network of family who all took care of my sister. My sister grew up the center of attention of a lot of adults. And when my father came back from the war, I was born nine months later. And that was quite a blow to my sister. And so, um, as sometimes happens, there were really kind of two family configurations inside our supposedly small nuclear family. And in one, there had been a disrupted primary relationship between my sister and my mother, and a very strong effort on my mother's part to help my sister bond with her father, our father. And then there was a kind of a a more, I guess you might say, on the surface, usual family constellation, two parents, both working, older sister, younger sister. But I was, in essence, a first child in a family that was existing alongside this other family that had much more complex dynamics. So pretty early... (laughs) I think I felt a series of tensions in our family of four and made me both very observant, uh, but also I would say a witness because really the more complicated dynamics that happened in my family were ones that didn't really include me. They had to do with what was happening among my mother, my father, and my sister. And I was very frequently a witness. And you know, fast forward, that's been the center of my professional work, really, you know, since the early 1970s. Professionally, I would say that my understanding, first of all, that there was a field called family therapy, really had to do with my first job. I graduated from college in 1969, and I had a position both as a mental health worker on an inpatient psychiatric unit, and also I was a researcher on that unit. And in that era, in the the 1960s, it was possible for mental health workers to be treated. Essentially, our job positions were very much like first-year psychiatry residents. So we had our own roster of patients. One of my patients was a young woman who had a first-time psychotic break, And the chief resident and I were sitting in an interview room with her and her mother. And he was conducting the interview. And at the end of the, you know, whatever it was, half hour, 40 minutes, the two of us went out to discuss what had happened. 
And really, it was as if we had been in a in a completely different room with each other. My descriptions bore no relationship whatsoever to his descriptions. And finally, he looked at me and he said, you know, you sound a lot like Carter Umbarger. Carter's just come back from the Philadelphia Child Guidance Center, and he's been working with this guy named Sal Mnuchin. You sound exactly like them. I think you should meet him. So that's really the beginning of my career as a family therapist, because it was clear that I was not an individual therapist, that what I observed had much more to do with family system dynamics. And in fact, I apprenticed myself to Carter. And then subsequently, I went on to graduate school and did much more formal family therapy training. I trained with Lynn Hoffman, other people at the Ackerman Institute, and, you know, a number of other family therapists. So that's a short (laughs) summary of the history of my being a family therapist. (laughs) People, before they even have the language, right, before they have systemic language, they've always kind of thought that way. And once you think systemically and contextually, you can really never think another way. So, you know, you were kind of born with that orientation. Your own family of origin experience was interesting, which led to what we're going to talk about today, which is you spent your whole professional career talking about witnessing. So let's talk about the origins of the witnessing project. And first, let's just define, because, you know, I think some people, when they hear witness, they think in legal terms. So let's define, because our audience is therapists, from a therapeutic perspective, what it means to witness and tell us about the origin of your work. The term uh, witness, of course, is used in a legal context. But there's another context that comes from social psychology and has to do with bystander theory. The work that I've done combines bystander theory and trauma theory, and I'm using the construct of witness to differentiate people who are victims of violence and violation from people who are perpetrators of violence and violation and believe that and say that witnessing is a phenomenon that occurs when you see hear or learn about a event and in the context of my work I am using it in the in the domain of violence and violation and the two areas that I've studied most and practiced most have to do with the kinds of violence and violation that happen in medical contexts around illness dying and death on the one hand and the other domain is from kind of intra-family all the way up through inter-ethnic, racial, national conflict. So I've done work in post-conflict societies and societies where genocides have happened. And I've also done work in a small kind of domestic sphere where intimate violence occurs. And I'm particularly interested in the linkages across intimate and political violence. So those are the two domains that I've both studied and written a lot about and done work in, in terms of the experience of the witness. And why do you think witnessing is such an important part of helping clients deal with trauma? Because we as therapists are the witnesses. So, you know, far and away, the majority of violence and violation that people experience in their lives comes to us 
through and in the witness position. It doesn't, or you know, the the vast majority of people aren't on a day-to-day basis, victims, nor are they perpetrators. But we are witnesses. In my model, I have a very specific kind of witnessing model that identifies that there's not just one witness position, but rather there are four. The events of this last year, both in terms of COVID and also in terms of George Floyd's murder in particular, but of course the murders of many, many, many other people and people of color in particular, would map on to the model, but I think I can illustrate the model pretty easily because I suspect that many people who are going to be listening to this will have had experiences that will resonate with what I'm saying. So people don't occupy one position for their whole lives. We occupy witness positions that are moment-to-moment situational. And for the people who were there when George Floyd was murdered, they occupied what I call the aware but disempowered position. And they felt helpless and frustrated and enraged, but they couldn't do much about it. Whereas the police, the ER people who, who arrived on the scene were in the empowered position. They were empowered by virtue of the authority that the state conferred on them, but they were actually unaware of the actual event and context that was going on. And that position to be a empowered person who's actually unaware of the kind of totality of what it is you're witnessing or involved in is a really dangerous position. And all of my work has been to help people move up into an aware and empowered position and not either stay in the aware but disempowered position or alternatively manage that experience of helplessness and frustration and ineffectiveness by moving into unawareness by doing things that are ultimately self-destructive. I mean, they may be very constructive and useful, you know, at the end of a really long day, any of us, and that's certainly true of me, can decide I'm going to veg out, you know, I'm going to watch some ridiculous show on Netflix. Okay, fine. You know, that's perfectly reasonable. But as a long-term practice, as a way of managing, soothing ourselves, comforting ourselves when life is difficult and we're, we are feeling helpless, it's not going to be effective. What's effective ultimately is finding ways to feel effective when we're aware of what's going on. And hopefully that's what therapists are doing. And Can you give us an example of a therapist that is empowered but unaware? Sometimes we work with clients and I heard you say once the the devastating effects of doing nothing or saying nothing. So I think sometimes when beginning therapists are presented with a situation they've never been in, I think that's what you mean by an empowered but unaware position. Maybe you can give us some examples of that. I think there are many situations where therapists could be thrown into a family 
Actually, I can give an example of my own life. And in fact, I I had mentioned Carter Umbarger. He was a supervisor in this particular setting. And I was in a psychiatric hospital again, Boston State Hospital. And I was in front of a one-way mirror and had a, a bug in my ear. And I was working with a young man whose father was a policeman. He was in his 20s. And there were two or three other brothers in the room. And the mom wasn't in the room. So there was me, who was a you know 24-year-old slim woman, and these big Irish Catholic guys, one of whom was a policeman. And I was getting advised by my supervisor to do some structural moves, you know, like have move the father, that he should be this. Or that. And I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. And I was empowered by virtue of the fact that I was the therapist in the room, but I was blocked. I was unaware of any moves that I could make. I knew that the moves that I was being told to make weren't going to work for me, but I was completely clueless about what might. And yet the people in the room were continuing to interact with me like you know, you're in charge, you're the person who's supposed to know what's going on. So, you know, I think that's a not uncommon situation for a young therapist starting out. How do we move from being unaware to more aware? Well, in that instance, what I did, I mean, you know, I hadn't developed the model yet, but it, it does fit. I spoke into the room and said that I wanted to consult with my colleagues behind the one-way mirror. Of course, they had given consent for that. I went back and I said pretty much what I've said to you, which is you're all men and you're in your 40s. And what you're able to do in the room is completely different from what I'm able to do. You know, now I would say they don't have an inter they didn't have an intersectional lens. They weren't sensitive to the gender dynamics. And I would have discussed it in that way. I didn't have the vocabulary to do it that way. But I did say, you know, you've got to figure out what I can do and what my relationship is with these people. And so, you know, we hammered it out and they were able to give me some suggestions and I was able to go back in feeling, oh yeah, okay, these are things that I can do. And it didn't involve telling the father that he should move his chair and he should say this and he should say that. And it was much more about hearing what people's experience in the moment was that allowed me to respond in a reflective way that was clarifying of, of what people were feeling. And I was going back to those two areas that you've focused on in your career, talking about violence and talking about grief and dying. I am wondering if you could give us some tips on, as a therapist, how to be a better witness for sitting with people in really extreme times or being in situations that you as the therapist may have no idea what that is like. You know, I, I, I you're kind of framing it as if one is a person who hasn't had those experiences oneself. So I suppose we would say that person is fortunate, but you know, there are other there are lots of ways that we have experience and one is that we listen to people and we hear people's stories and the other is we read. And nowadays, you know, whether it's on social media or through film, you know, there's so many ways that we are in fact exposed to stories. Certainly the news allows us to be drawn close if we want 
to experiences that are far outside of our experience. But clearly that kind of experience is different from lived experience. So I think the first thing that I would say is that we situate, or I'll just talk for myself, I try to situate myself with a lot of humility and with grounding myself in what my intention is, which is to understand and therefore to be the kind of listener that allows people to know things they don't even know they know. So I'm trying to listen, I'm trying to reflect back, I'm trying to understand and speak about what I'm beginning to understand in a way that brings forth what people know but probably weren't yet able to verbalize. So I think it's a really highly attuned and mutual process of self-other inquiry, self-other discovery, self-other curiosity. Those are the things that, you know, I'm trying to do in a engaged encounter with other people. Yeah, my framing of the question is if you didn't have that experience, but what if you had? I mean, everybody can usually relate to losing someone. And I once I lost my father when I was 18, and I once had a supervisor tell me that could be effective to connect and relate to a client, but it could also be disempowering of their story to assume that your experience is similar or your experience somehow takes priority over theirs. So if you've had a similar experience when you're doing this witnessing, listening is obviously a key. How much of your own experience, if you've had something similar happen to you in your life, do you share? Well, I think Michael White puts it in a way that I really appreciate. And he talked about decentering the experience of the clinician. So even if I share something personal and almost as a political statement from the beginning of my publishing career, which is now, you know, over 30, 40 years, I've always introduced personal material in my writing because as a political statement, I have not wanted to, through the structure of a professional paper, imply that I am able to talk about clients as if their suffering is distinct and different from my suffering. So I've got a lot of personal information out there on the internet. So number one, many people who come to see me did come to see me as, as a therapist already had a fair amount of information about me. But if they didn't, and they're saying something, I guess I would say that the chances are, I mean, I just don't have the experience that my, my talking in any kind of detail about what I've gone through advances the conversation. In other words, for me, there's a really big difference from my tapping into what my kind of emotional reservoir is. That's really different from sharing 
concrete detail of experience. I'm really not, I don't think most people are interested in my experience. They're interested in my helping them understand their experience better. And it is the case that I think I can ask more nuanced questions because of the range of life experiences I've had. You know, I've had an awful lot of, and this is, there's a written record of this. I've had a lot, way more than my share of experiences in the medical realm as a daughter, as a mother, as a wife, as an individual. Most people who come into my office are not going to have the numbers of experiences that I've had in that domain. On the other hand, when I work with people who are survivors of genocide, I don't have that experience. I'm certainly the grandchild of people with that experience, but I have not myself lived through a genocide. Related to this, you know, you often speak of the dehumanizing practices and what therapists try to do is institute rehumanizing practices. Can you speak about that as it pertains to the practice of ethical systemic therapy? It's nice that you mentioned that one of my dear friends is a woman named Pumla Gobadov Medikazela. She was the psychologist on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. And she's really somebody who's written really eloquently on practices of dehumanization and what is involved in rehumanization. I've learned a lot from her, both from what she's written and my conversations with her. Rehumanizing is something that I think can happen in moment-to-moment encounters with anyone anywhere. You know, it doesn't have to be in a clinician's office. It can be out on the street, and it really has to do with helping somebody feel seen and helping somebody feel known, regardless of what the content is that they're bringing forward. That's kind of what I think the essence of rehumanization is. Do you have any specific tips how to do that with a client that has been minimized or their experience has been deprioritized you know obviously listening and prioritizing their voice is important for our therapists listening about working with populations like this that have been oppressed do you have any other tips or or skills that one could practice to make that connection i mean i think that the communicating genuine interest which I think is different from curiosity, but communicating a deep interest in understanding what somebody has lived through is a very profound experience, usually for both people. Also working with populations like this comes being dehumanized, demoralized, and one of the great common factors in psychotherapy that I like to study and talk to expert clinicians about is hope, instilling hope, which is certainly a a powerful factor in this type of work. You talk about the concept of reasonable hope. Tell us about that. So I began uh, writing about what I call reasonable hope about 20 years ago, and it is... I'm contrasting what I call reasonable hope with what I call rainbow hope. Rainbow hope has to do with imagining that a future will be better 
And so people's energies are focused on a future where something may or may not happen that will be better. That's what they hope for. And in that sense, rainbow hope is a feeling, and it's a feeling that's directed towards a preferred future. And I don't have anything against that. I think it, we're hardwired for that. But in a clinical setting, and frankly in my own life, that hasn't been very helpful. Reasonable hope is a practice that we do with others. And it's something we do, it's not a feeling, although it certainly involves feeling. And it's about making sense of the present moment. And it's a practice. And one of the hallmarks of reasonable hope is that you identify goals and pathways towards them and you try to figure out who you can enlist to help you walk that pathway towards that goal. And sometimes the goals that we select are proxies for what we really want. So they're often kind of way steps towards something. But as I also say, the human brain really can't tell the difference between a small goal that's accomplished and a big one. So let's say you, you're committed to climate change or you're committed to ending drought. Well, your brain can't really tell the difference day to day whether or not you've solved the problem of drought or whether you've reduced the amount of water you're using in your home, you've stopped flushing your toilet every time or whatever. Your brain produces endorphins when you accomplish any goal, no matter whether it's huge or small. And all of that uh, is helpful in maintaining the kind of hope that I'm talking about, reasonable hope. I think another challenge of doing this witnessing work for the therapist is compassion fatigue because as you said it's not just curiosity you're genuinely making a connection and when you hear a very difficult situation trauma after trauma it must take a toll over the life course a therapist working with difficult populations so how do you prevent compassion fatigue and burnout when doing this frontline work of witnessing so maybe this is a, a good moment for me to tell you about the Witness to Witness program that I run at the Migrant Clinicians Network. So for the last three years, I've been working with clinicians, attorneys, service providers who are working with migrants, immigrants, people who've been made vulnerable by very specific targeted policies in the United States and of course in other countries as well. We started out working primarily with providers, uh, and again, healthcare providers, service providers, and attorneys who were stationed at the southern border and were working with people at various stages of the detention process. Quickly, we realized that the need was huge in all kinds of arenas, and so we now work with service providers and healthcare professionals and attorneys who are all over the country and working with all kinds of populations that are made uh, vulnerable by, as I say, very targeted policies. So there are four components to the Witness to Witness program. We have clinician listening sessions that are one-to-one -one conversations that are not therapy. They're very highly structured, and I can say something about that. We have facilitated peer support groups 
We have organizational consultation in order to help organizations become more trauma-informed. And we have online seminars that are community-oriented. So we use the chat in a very particular way. Most people in your audience are aware that the figures on clinician burnout in all of the healthcare professions are rising. They were problematic long before the COVID pandemic, but the situation has gotten significantly worse. You know, there's one way of thinking about compassion. Neurobiologically, brain studies, MRI studies tell us that when people are feeling compassion, that compassion actually doesn't fatigue. Empathy does. People get exhausted from certain kinds of ways that they form empathy. But I think an interesting way of thinking about compassion fatigue is that it's not so much what we are able to do that fatigues us, that exhausts us. It's when we come up against the things that we cannot do. So our compassion, we, we get exhausted from it when we feel unsuccessful when we feel we're not able to support people the way they need to be supported, when we feel here is a family, they're undocumented, they need medical care, they need food, and we don't have services that we can provide them. There are regulations that make it impossible for them. Those are the kinds of situations where, as providers, we feel helpless. And so... You know, that's what leads to burnout and compassion fatigue. I think people, clinicians don't burn out and we don't have compassion fatigue when we are able to smoothly provide the people we work with with what they need, whether it's emotional or practical. Then I think mostly people feel great. After three years of doing this, obviously, it's part of your legacy, the Witness to Witness Project. What are the biggest learning takeaways so far? I guess they're really in two arenas. I mean, we've certainly learned an enormous amount about how you can make populations vulnerable and how you can make people's lives miserable. So I have lots of information and new knowledge and insight about that. But We also just have a story after story of just amazing resilience that ways that people have of coping and managing and coming together and supporting each other. You know, when you think about just one example, um, MCN, Migrant Clinicians Network, has a program called Babies at the Border. And we work with moms who arrive at the southern border in the third trimester of pregnancy many of whom uh, didn't leave their home countries pregnant. And sometimes they've been raped or, num- you know, there are many reasons why they are now arriving at our southern border and they're pregnant and about to deliver. And these moms are, they've been through hell. And yet, given the opportunity to deliver babies in a safe uh, setting, they bond, they're attached, they're completely, it takes so much courage to make that journey. And then so much love and heart to deliver those babies under really tough circumstances, usually alone without their family or support systems and connecting to the new little loves. And 
It's completely remarkable. So, you know, I have those two buckets of stories, you might say, just the amazing stories from the providers that we work with and the stories they tell about the people they serve and stories about cruelty um, policies that exist all over the globe. It's consistent with many model developers I've interviewed in the last three years. Is they, they take their other passions in life and kind of combine them together. So I understand, you know, you're a dancer and that you have integrated dancing and choreography into your witnessing work. So that's, that sounds too interesting <laughs> not to ask about. Tell us about that. In 2013, I moved to Berkeley from Boston because uh, our adult children and their children, so our five grandchildren were in the East Bay. And uh, I was not happy about moving, but I, I wanted to be with our grandchildren. And so the summer before we moved, I said to myself, okay, well, you know, what is it that you haven't done that you dropped that you could pick up or what new activity would you want to do? Well, I'd been a dancer through college and had, I mean, I, you know, at any party, you'd always see me dance, but I hadn't done any formal dance training since college. And I thought, okay, well, that's what I'm going to do. And that is what I did. I found a wonderful woman who teaches older dancers. And, you know, our bodies actually are different. I don't know. I don't really, in an embodied way, I don't think I know that, but I know that with my head. So I started in 2013 taking dance classes again. And it became clear to me that I was really interested in choreography. So my dance teacher actually asked me to collaborate with her on a dance performance in San Francisco. And we began working in Mountain View Cemetery, which is a cemetery in Oakland. And we got completely enthralled with dancing in a cemetery. And I had an insight that what we should be doing. We should be integrating the witnessing work and what it meant to be dancing in a cemetery and bringing other elder dancers together. And so that's what we've done. So we, we prior to the pandemic, we met once a month in the cemetery using a witnessing curriculum. Actually, a, it's kind of a modification of a Michael White four-part witnessing program and we do it all without any language whatsoever, just movement and no music. And it's been completely amazing. We've gotten multiple grants. We performed uh, in 2018, we performed, we were one of six art groups that performed at the uh, Oakland Museum, California. And it's, um, yeah, it's been wonderful. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's so cool. Such a great way to integrate your your passions, as I said. And when you think a last question, when you think of your work in the field and your life's work and what is still left to come and witnessing, obviously you've spent your whole career doing it. What do you hope for the, the future of uh, witnessing movement? Oh, that's huge. I've never really thought about that, what I hope for the future of witnessing. I guess what I would say is that the world would be better off if we did understand the degree to which we are impacted by our witness positions, 
if we were able to reach out to people who are having experiences as witnesses, and if we were able to keep in mind that people feel horrible when they feel incompetent, ineffective, helpless, and helping people find ways, even if they're small, because small is not the same as trivial, even small ways that people can feel more empowered in the moment in relation to something that's been disturbing. If we can do that for other people, if we can do that for ourselves, really, truly, I think the world would be a better place. So I guess that's my aspiration, that people understand better how much of our lived experience is that we are witnesses and that there are very concrete things we can do pretty much all the time to uh, feel more empowered in that position and to help others feel more empowered. Well, and where we started, you spoke about feeling like a witness in your own family of origin and an observer. What does your family, both your family of origin, your family of procreation, think about your life's work? (laughs) I think they're, I mean, I think they're proud, but I also think that it's just so seamless with how they understand who I am and how they live with me that I guess I would say, I I don't think that the witnessing part is probably distinguishable from any other aspect of how they know me. And that's true for my grandchildren as well. I mean, one of the things, I have a a grandchild who's on a text with me, a 10-year-old, and the other day she brought me this gorgeous peony, and I said, Anna, how did you know? And she said, Grandma, you're, of course I know and that you love peonies. So I think that into the next generation down from the next, you know, the grandchild generation, they are already witnesses. They already make me feel seen and known as I believe I make them feel seen and known. So that's what I'd say. <laughs> Beautifully said. Thank you so much for your time, Cato Weingarten. Uh, you're a true original. And if people want to contact you and continue the dialogue, what is the best way to reach you? And where can they find out more about the Witness to Witness project? If you put in Migrant Clinicians Network, there's a Witness to Witness program uh, page, many pages, many resources. And I am at kweingarten at migrantclinician.org. But I think I'm all over the web. I think if you put my name in, a lot comes up as a way of reaching me. Eli, back with you, bringing to a close another informant installment of the AAMFT podcast. You can find out everything you need to know about what Keith has spoke about at migrantclinician.org. See upcoming trainings and archived webinars. So if you were interested in that Witness to Witness project, migrantclinician.org. If you're interested in finding out what's going on at the AMFT, go to aamft.org. And as I've been talking about in the past several weeks, AMFT is very proud to sponsor the first ever Systemic Family Therapy Conference, the most comprehensive event for systemic therapists around. It will be fully virtual in 2021. And it's coming up November 10th through 12th, 
We're bringing together attendees from every continent in the world and eliminating barriers to access, building our systemic community, and strengthening our profession to make a worldwide impact. I'll be there presenting with my colleague, Adrian Blow, a topic near and dear to my heart and tied into what we were talking about today, all about the common factor of hope. So please join us. A great opportunity. Many continuing education units available. Go to aamft.org conference to find out everything you need to know about the first ever Systemic Family Therapy Conference, which AMFT is sponsoring. Drop me a line, Eli at NorthstarCounselingCenter.com. Love to hear from our listeners. You can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Eli Live. The AMFT is at the AAMFT. Please also check out EliCaram.com. We love hearing from you. Your feedback shapes our topics and our guests. All of our back installments are available for three seasons, wherever you find your favorite podcast. I like Apple Podcasts, but you can find us on Google Play, Spotify, and we really appreciate a star rating and review. It just takes a second, but it helps us rise up through the ranks of the Mental Health Podcast. Until next time, my friends, stay safe and stay systemic. Stay systemic.